Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. You know, it's not unusual for us to talk about climate change or carbon sequestration or land use as it pertains to environmental protection on Go Green Radio. We've covered those topics many, many times, but today we're going to cover it from a slightly different angle. We're going to be talking with Ryan Zinn, who is the director of a program called Grow Ahead, and they are working to raise funds from a variety of different stakeholders to help farmers and uh, ranchers and growers um, in third world countries, places where there's not a lot of funding to invest in the kind of land use that basically will be climate change solutions. Um, So we're going to be talking about some of the different ways that his organization goes about doing that. And good news alert, we can all get involved. And so let me bring uh, Ryan to the the conversation. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Ryan. I am so glad to have you on the show. Good morning, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'd love to begin by doing two things. First of all, if our listeners are listening to us on their computer or their mobile device, you can open up a new tab in your web browser and go to growahead.org. So you can follow along, look at the website for the organization while we talk. And Ryan, let's begin by having you tell us about the history of Grow Ahead. How how did this organization get started and, and what's your mission? Well, yeah, thanks for, for asking. You know, so Grow Ahead started about 10 years ago, and, and really the, the you know, origin story for Grow Ahead was really to work with small-scale fair trade coffee uh, cooperatives throughout the, the third world or global south um, to help them finance their car- coffee harvest. One of the things that we see in the coffee world with small-scale farmers is that sometimes it's really hard to finance their coffee harvest. It may take them three to six months to actually get paid by their buyers. So to be able to keep food on the table and their operations running, um, finance is really, really important. And over time, what we found was that um, the situation, you know, in coffee lands had changed a little bit and farmers weren't in as great of need for, for financing their harvest as they were previously. And so in consultation with a number of farmers organizations throughout the world, we found out that their biggest priority was really climate change. And climate change, as we have seen, has been hitting particularly the tropics very hard. Um, in particular, you know, farmers in areas that grow um, coffee or cocoa. Um, and farmers have a number of great strategies to both adapt and to mitigate um, the, the climate change reality. And one of these was by growing and planting trees that can help uh, protect and you know, create resiliency within their system, um, but can also feed their families and help diversify their income. So over the course of the last five years, we've really focused on raising funds to help farmers really invest in transition to a much more resilient system that can feed their families, but also create some income while addressing climate change. That is that is awesome. And, and I love what you're doing. And I'm excited to share more of your story with our listeners. But help me understand why you're focusing on reforestation. Why does that matter so much? Well, you know, we look at it from a couple of different perspectives. And I would say, you know, writ large, the 30,000 foot view of climate change is one basically of two things, right? 
most of the time when we think about climate change, we often think about, you know, smokestacks, you know, emitting pollution or, or your cars, you know, emitting exhaust, and that being the primary driver of climate change and greenhouse gases. But one thing that what we found through, you know, consultation with scientists and other people within the industry was that, you know, agriculture, industrial agriculture actually contributes upwards of about 20 to 30 percent of all greenhouse gases. So we see this tremendous opportunity um, to be able to reduce emissions um, coming from the industrial agricultural sector. But here's the kicker and something that many people maybe overlook or forget from their you know, high school biology <laughs> class is that agriculture actually has this tremendous capacity not only to basically reduce emissions that we see in industrial agriculture, but actually sequester carbon from the atmosphere. And this is an amazing fact that plants and trees in particular can actually sequester carbon um, through photosynthesis and actually put that carbon back in the soil where it belongs. So our goal was basically multifold. One was to be able to address the climate change situation from two angles, um, sucking down that carbon from the atmosphere, but by creating these much more resilient, what we call agroforestry systems, where we grow food um, in forests, basically, things like coffee and cocoa and other tree crops, um, we can actually basically, you know, do two things. One, sequester that carbon, but also create a new economy that supports both local communities and can increase income for those farmers. So that's been really our focus at our mission. And we see this as a, as a triple win. We can address climate change. We can address rural poverty. Um, and we can also provide an opportunity for folks to get involved from all over the world. That's awesome. What does agroforestry mean? And, and how is that different from other types of reforestation? Help us understand those two components of what you're doing. That is a great question. Um, so agroforestry really is a couple of different uh, categories or tactics when we think about utilizing perennial or tree agriculture. Yeah. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we can check out on their website uh, at growahead.org, there's a great uh, FAQ page that talks about agroforestry and it talks about the differences between that and reforestation. Sometimes when we look at reforestation efforts, um, you know, we're looking at recapturing part of the Amazon or part of the rainforest, um, it, trying to keep our carbon cycle in balance is tough when we've paved over or we've, you know, cut down so much of our natural carbon sinks. And so that's, that's a really uh, important thing to remember. So Ryan, I'm going to let you go ahead and, and talk about what agroforestry means and how it's different from other types of reforestation. Yeah, we think about you know, crops, for example, everything from different types of citrus to coffee and, and cocoa, um, they really thrive and originated in what we call a multi-strata agroforestry system. And that basically means that what we try to do in agroforestry is recreate a natural forest system, but one that's really optimized um, for people to be able to farm and have a livelihood and, and grow fruit, food and other crops. And so, you know, traditionally, a lot of uh, indigenous and traditional farmers would grow not only food crops, but also things like medicinal plants, for example, um, fodder for animals, and even fibers um, from far forests. And so our goal is to try to recreate that way and really optimize it so that farmers can get the most out of it. Um, and there's other ways that we can think about when we think about agroforestry. Um, for example, there's been some great histories and 
um, experiences by integrating livestock and cattle, for example, mm-hmm. um, on tree crops. Um, and this is a way for uh, farmers to actually get more bang for their buck. They're able to basically provide food from a permanent or perennial source like trees um, to their livestock. And that really is a way for us to both provide food, increase uh, the animal welfare for these animals, um, but also really create a system that is much more climate resilient and sucks down carbon. And then lastly, there's another category of agroforestry that we think about where we're actually beginning to intercrop that is using two or three different types of crops on the field including trees. So there's some great examples where farmers will grow wheat in between rows of trees, um, and this provides ways to actually sequester carbon uh, while they grow that wheat, but also provide a windbreak and possibly another crop when that wheat is harvested. So there's different tactics that farmers use to be able to incorporate trees, um, ranchers as well, and this is a way to increase that resiliency within a, 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 a system. And this really difference is, is, is quite a bit different from traditional or kind of maybe, you know, conventional replanting um, of trees. And so our goal is to really recreate or replicate the natural forest, um, one that is really diversified. And by that, I mean, we're looking at many, many different types of crops uh, or trees, for example. And in some cases, we see a lot of these, these tree planting campaigns and these attempts to offset carbon, for example, by planting trees. And sometimes they will plant trees um, in these large monocultures, which doesn't really replicate a natural forest system. Or oftentimes they'll be planting trees at the wrong place at the wrong time. And so our goal is to really make sure that these trees are there for the uh, quite a long time. They can get the most out of their carbon sequestration and provide that income for farmers. That is brilliant. And, and I was really kind of astonished um, when I looked at your website and it says it's $1 to plant a tree. Uh, is it really just a dollar to plant a tree? And, and where does that money go? Yeah, so that is a good question. So we usually use this formula of about $1 per tree, um, and that's a simplified way for us to communicate out to all of our many supporters on where their money goes. We want to be as transparent as possible. Um, I think that's one of the biggest challenges with a number of, you know, campaigns and charity work that you're not exactly clear where your money goes. So all of the money that we raise goes directly to our partner projects. Um, And in most cases, we work with farmers organizations that often have um, some of this infrastructure and experience already in place. So if you think about having a pretty large-scale tree planting campaign, um, you need things like nurseries, planting material, seeds, soil, grow bags, uh, transportation, all of that stuff, including training for farmers in some cases. And so our goal is to really be able to support that wraparound services um, for farmers, depending upon their needs. Um, so in some cases, for example, in West Africa, where we work with a lot of cocoa farmers, they have cocoa fields um, that are grown in monocrops or monocultures. And our goal is to really diversify and add that shade, uh, provide that buffer and windbreak, um, but also provide those refuges in, in for biodiversity, like migratory birds, for example. And so our goal is to be able to really focus on the realities on the ground um, and meet those needs. And so that, that, that $1 per tree is an average out. Um, of all of the costs that go into actually replanting a pretty significant scale of uh, food forests. Well, and what I love about that is, you know, what you're describing is a very customized, tailored fit for the the partners that you're working with, the folks on the ground. You're not coming in saying, we know what you need. Let's do this, that, and the other thing. I love the partnership. I love the geosensitivity of what you're doing. And I think that is a, 
not only a very effective, but also a very humble way of, you know, partnering with the folks who are going to be seeing this through and living with it for decades to come. And I think that's just really, really admirable. We're going to take a a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk much more about Grow Ahead, uh, their programs, where they're working, how they're doing this exactly. Uh, So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And if you just tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Ryan Zinn. He's the director of an organization called Grow Ahead. You can check out their website at growahead.org. Love it. Please check it out. Ryan, how does Grow Ahead differ from other crowdfunding platforms? Yeah, that's a good question. So really, you know, our goal um, with Grow Ahead is to raise funds, and we work both with individual, um, you know, activists that are really concerned about supporting, you know, global movements to address climate change or rural poverty. Um, We also work with businesses um, in North America um, to be able to help them contribute um, and address this issue as well. And, you know, really our goal is to be able to sort of like facilitate that connection um, between, you know, concerned citizens, activists here in the United States and Canada um, with this really global movement that is focusing on, 
you know, addressing things like food security and climate resilience throughout the globe. And our goal really is to focus on making sure that um, the, the bulk of all of the funds raised goes directly to, to farmers and ranchers throughout the world. And, and one of the things that we do is really focus on in collaboration with these partners is to, is to basically have them in the driver's seat. To be honest with you, you know, they are really the experts in many cases. They're drawing on many generations of experience when it comes to um, adapting to their ever-changing climate. We want to be able to support and accompany them best as we can. So we're not coming in with a preset plan or an idea of how we want to run these projects, but really develop them collaboratively with farmers and ranchers and look for ways that we can actually raise them up by providing them funds and empowering them with this money. That's so great. And and let's like take it down to the, you know, right down to the ground. Um, when you are working on a project, Talk to us about who plans the project, how it's carried out. Give us some idea about the minutia of how funds come into you and then what happens when a project goes into place. Okay, perfect. Let's do that. So to give you an example, I'll talk about one of our partners in Honduras. Um, this is a, an organization that basically started out as a, a group of coffee farmers. And what they found out was that, you know, they were losing their shirt um, because all of these intermediaries or what we sometimes called coyotes in the coffee world uh, would come in and they would pay them pennies on the dollar um, for their coffee. And so while, you know, you go to Starbucks and you may pay, you know, $4 for a coffee, they were being paid roughly about a dollar per pound um, for their coffee. And so what they wanted to do was come together and organize so that they can actually have a little bit more leverage in the marketplace, but also address some of these other challenges that they were facing. So over time, what they realized was to be able to address both the economic challenges as well as the climatic challenges, it was far better to work together. And to be able to do that to really increase the value of their farms and address some of the challenges that they're facing, um, they found that they wanted to really enhance their farms in different ways, including planting trees. Um, and so what they did was they submitted a proposal to Grow Ahead. They said, we want to grow um, about 100,000 seedlings at our nursery to be able to distribute to their some 500 farmers in their network and their cooperative. Um, to be able to really enhance their farms. Um, and then we reviewed their proposal. We worked with them and to understand what they had in mind. Uh, we built up that budget. And generally what we do is really focus on two things. One, um, to be able to make sure that their technical aspects are good and their timing is right um, in terms of our ability to raise funds. And then what we do is we actually launch a campaign uh, within our network and with our business partners to be able to promote all of the fine work that this cooperative is doing. Um, we do educational campaigns, particularly on social media, and we usually raise the funds anywhere between three to six months, you know, in, in that time range. And then once we have those funds raised, we basically transfer that money and then we follow up and do evaluation with those uh, farmer partners um, over the course of six to 12 and oftentimes into two or three years, I'm sorry, six to 12 months and then oftentimes into to two or three years afterwards. Because this is a really a learning process for everybody. We want to make sure um, that we're having a positive impact. We're really responding to the needs of the farmers that we work with. Um, and then we want to make sure that um, all of their plans uh, go through uh, properly, I would say. You know, one of the biggest challenges we see in some of this ecosystem restoration and tree planting campaigns globally is that, you know, there may be, you know, hundreds of thousands of trees get 
planted at one time, but oftentimes it has a really high mortality rate. You know, you may lose, mm-hmm. you know, some 80% of the trees and that's just a terrible way. So we want to make sure that we really reduce that mortality rate and make sure um, the, the campaign is really responding to the farmer's needs. And so there's no sense in planting a whole bunch of trees that farmers, quite frankly, have no use for um, or that displace their ability to produce food. And so we want, really want to make sure that we're really strategic about this um, so that we can really ensure that there's a high rate of success, both for the individual farmer, but for the campaign as well. That makes perfect sense. You know, the need is so great for what you're doing. So how does Grow Ahead identify projects and cooperatives to work with? Yeah, that's a great question. So really, you know, we are a pretty lean organization. Um, We really have, you know, one and a half people working um, Mm -hmm. full time. And so our goal is to make sure that we partner with really um, strong organizations um, because we're not going to go ahead, as I mentioned, and to set up these projects or design them. We want to work with organizations, you know, particularly Farmers Cooperative. Absolutely. Yeah, you want to work with credible organizations. Absolutely. And and one of the things that I think is so cool about your website is that you list out and you have a map uh, of all of the different projects that you work with and a really great profile uh, of each of the projects. And, you know, I, I think that that is something that's so important for donors. Um, anybody who's going to be contributing, um, having that transparency, almost getting to know uh, the people that they're working with, I think is, is really, really important. Um, and so I really do encourage everybody to get out on growahead.org. It's a fantastic website, very simple, very easy to, um, to, to check out their social media as well. Um, Ryan, you know, back to you, uh, I, I want to talk more about how the, the money is allocated, um, what percentage of the money donated online goes to reforestation projects. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, for us, it's really important to be as transparent as possible. Um, unfortunately, there's been lots of cases in the nonprofit world or the charity world where a big chunk of the donations go to overhead or go to people here in the United States that operate these programs. And um, in the majority of cases, 100% um, of the funds generated go directly to partner farmers. We've been able to be luckily and have some grants that cover our um, operations. So any additional funds raised as part of these campaigns, um, aside for some, you know, international transfer fees or, you know, credit card fees, for example, um, go directly to those farmers. Um, and so when we work with the proposals that the farmer organizations submit, we look at their budgets, um, we make sure that um, all that money as well is going directly to the projects that they designed and implemented. Um, so that's really, I would say, one of the things that distinguishes us and that um, really we endeavor to make sure that, you know, if a person out there would like to donate $10 and, you know, plant 10 trees, that that money actually goes to plant 10 trees and it's not going to plant, you know, one tree and the rest goes to uh, some person here in the United States. Right, right. Now, how does a producer organization apply to be one of your partners? Yep. So we've got an online portal um, where, uh, you know, farmers, ranchers, and producers can go ahead and apply. Um, one of the things that we've um, developed in consultation with our former partners is a really simplified application. You know, one of the things I've seen, Jill, 
over the years in, in working in international development is that, you know, accessing funds can sometimes be really challenging, you know, um, and there's it, quite a bit of paperwork and, and follow-up. And so we wanted to simplify the process as much as possible um, and allow farmers to go do the job that they were, you know, were, were raised to do, which was, mm-hmm. was raise food and plant trees and um, not spend all their time with a whole bunch of paperwork. So, you know, we've tried to um, basically, you know, thread the needle as far as getting all the information that's absolutely critical and pertinent, um, but without overloading, uh, you know, farmer applicants with a whole lot of bureaucracy. So, so far, we've been pretty successful at that. And do you market uh, somehow? I mean, how, how do partners find out about your organization? Yeah, so what we do is work primarily um, through the Global Fair Trade Network. Um, yeah. So, you know, through this organization called Fair Trade International, they've got um, literally hundreds of farmers' cooperatives throughout the, the global south and the developing world um, that focus on growing fair trade products. Um, and so we've promoted primarily through that network um, because what we want to do is make sure we've got good established partners that have mm-hmm. um, both the infrastructure and expertise to implement these projects. And we found that working with fair trade cooperatives has really been the best uh, process so far in, in being able to do that. That allows us to keep our overhead low um, and make sure that uh, the, the real impact happens on the ground. That makes perfect sense. And, and why is it that you focus primarily on the global south versus the global north? Yep. So that's a good question. You know, one thing that we've noticed is that farmers all over the world, I should say small farmers in particular, um, really have a hard time accessing uh, capital and finances to be able to invest in their farms and diversify. Um, And one of the things that we noticed was, you know, there are, uh, you know, programs here in the United States, inadequate as they may be, for example, um, to be able to access that. You know, I've worked some here domestically with farmers accessing different USDA services. And while they tend to, you know, really prioritize, I would say, the larger farms, for example, or the industrial Mm -hmm. farms, um, but there are programs that farmers can, in fact, access. Um, So we really focused on basically, you know, fair trade uh, cooperatives in large part because we think this is a, really is a two-pronged effort. Of course, climate resilience and, and carbon sequestration are absolutely critical, but without that social side to really ensure that we're looking at a fair and just transition to a greener world, um, we want to make sure that we don't kind of create the scenario where we sequester a whole bunch of carbon um, throughout the world, but it's actually maintaining a lot of the poverty that we're seeing in these rural areas. So that's been really why we focus primarily to work with um, producer organizations in the global south. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, my background is is in the Navy. I was a naval officer and for a long time, the U.S. military has had contingency plans for climate refugees. Um, and they the, the plans show, and these are all available online, anybody can look at them, this isn't secret, um, that a lot of climate refugees who'd be forced to leave because of famine, because of, uh, you know, the expected upshot of, of climate change would come from the global south. And so Indeed. there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of strategic and a lot of, you know, humanity to that focus on the global south, because they certainly are already experiencing the brunt of what is happening with climate change. And the expectation is that they will continue to as well. So I think that that's a really smart focus. I think it's really aligned with uh, not just global uh, and United Nations 
efforts, but also even our own country's efforts um, in the global South. And we could always do better, but I love that you're doing that. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Ryan Zinn from Grow Ahead. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. We've been talking with the director of an organization called Grow Ahead and their investment in farmers and ranchers um, in the global south is really inspiring. And it's something that I really encourage all of you to go out onto their website to learn more about uh, growahead.org. But you know, there's probably a lot of ways that our listeners can participate, Ryan. So give us a rundown. What can our listeners do to help you fulfill your mission? Well, you know, I would say first by going to growahead.org, um, they can learn more about the different projects that we've got going on, um, see all of the past successes that we have. And if they were, you know, motivated and interested, they can certainly contribute. Um, that would be one really simple way um, to be able to have a really direct and, you know, concrete impact on the ground um, and really in other people's lives. And so by contributing, as I've mentioned, you know, that money goes directly to those farmer producer co- uh, partners and allows us to really fulfill our mission. Similarly, I would say the other aspects that I think are really important would be able to, you know, follow us on social media and our newsletter because in addition to raising funds, we also like to raise awareness about some of the, you know, challenges um, that farmers are facing around the world and opportunities to really have a greater impact. I think it's really important that we vote with our dollars, that we contribute to good causes, and that we look 
to get involved on the policy end of things in the United States um, to be able to really make those broader systemic changes. We want to make sure that we have a positive impact for, for everybody, not just those, those partners that we have on the ground to the Grow Ahead Network. So I would say, you know, there's, you know, ever growing, depending on where you live at the municipal, state or federal level, there is some really great and emerging uh, climate change legislation that is absolutely critical. So I would say you got to kind of chew gum and dance. You know, you want to be able to contribute. You want to vote with your dollars but you also want to make bigger impacts through policy changes as well. Well, and, and I like that. Dance while you chew gum. Is there any <laughs> other way to chew gum? I, I just, I can't even imagine. Yeah. So that, <laughs> no, that's good advice. And, you know, I know that many of our listeners are, are there, there are so many topics, uh, you know, they care about the planet, they care about climate change. And sometimes it, it can be overwhelming, but if they want to learn more about regenerative agriculture uh, or small farmer resiliency or fair trade, where do you recommend that they go to learn more about those things? Yeah, that is a perfect question. You know, our uh, partner organization, um, Fair World Project, um, was actually um, our, our fiscal sponsor for, for Grow Ahead for a, a little while. Um, and they have the, the greatest, I would say, collection of information when it comes to this really important intersection, which is small-scale farmers and climate change um, and fair trade. Uh, we see those really, really connected together. And at fairworldproject.org, um, they've got a number of great resources, uh, blog posts and articles that can provide you both with some background information, but also opportunities to get further involved. That's, that's really, really helpful. I appreciate that, Ryan. Now, I, I want to talk about some of your specific campaigns, and there's one that really caught my attention. Um, you're working in Ghana with cocoa farmers, mm-hmm. and just a little personal story. Um, the priest at my parish is from Ghana, and oh, you know, wow. he, his grandmother owned a cocoa farm, and so he he talks to us about you know what that's like and how little they're paid for the chocolate that we yeah. pay a, a pretty penny for. Um, and, and actually, every Christmas, we bought fair trade chocolate from Ghana uh, out in the vestibule of the church uh, to help support um, cocoa farmers in Ghana. So talk to us about what you're doing there. Yeah, so this is I'm so great that you made this connection with Ghana and West Africa. So, you know, one of the things that sometimes people don't realize is that Ghana and Ivory Coast and West Africa, you know, they produce probably upwards between 60 and 70 percent of the global cocoa supply for chocolate. I mean, that's just outrageously huge numbers um, for such small countries to be able to contribute that much. Um, and the reality is, it's part of the reason why that is, is because uh, cocoa buyers and, you know, traders and manufacturers are just paying really poverty level wages um, for, for the harvest for these farmers. Um, and so this has really created a very big crisis in West Africa. And some of your listeners may have read or heard about um, some of the, the child labor that's going on and the forced labor um, that's happening in West Africa. And so as a result, we see this as a huge priority, both from a social and an environmental aspect. So certainly the fair trade aspect is important because it ensures that those farmers get closer to a living income 
um, that allows them to really survive and and more important than survive, really hopefully thrive going forward. Um, And then the second aspect that's really, really important is that West Africa, like other parts of the tropics, are what we call climate change hotspots. So when we look about, you know, the the future of climate change, it's really already there in West Africa. They've already seen some major, major, you know, impacts in terms of raising temperatures. And it's really not just um, higher temperatures, Jill, that's really a challenge, but it's how this really affects the growth cycle of plants. We're talking about droughts um, and too much water in some cases. And one of the things that we often overlook when we talk about climate change is that it can really disrupt the cycle for insects and pests. And just a one or two degree change can actually throw an ecosystem into total chaos where we have much more fungal infections or insect infections. And so all these are different challenges that we're seeing here in West Africa, particularly in the cocoa sector. And so our goal there is to work with fair trade cooperatives as they really have these designs in place to be able to buffer against the ecological challenges of climate change by planting more shade trees, planting diversified crops so they're much more balanced in terms of their approach to the growing crops and supporting their families. Um, but by doing so, we're also able to diversify their income so they're not so reliant on cocoa and these cocoa traders, and they can, in fact, raise their income um, by selling other crops and feeding their families in different areas. So really, we see this as a great opportunity to trial out an approach that could have a much bigger impact throughout the region. Well, and that is fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that. And I'd love to hear more about the project you've got going on with an indigenous-led ecosystem restoration project in Mexico. Talk to us about that, Ryan. Oh, this one is is really near and dear, close to my heart. Um, So, you know, I worked in uh, Chiapas, Mexico, which is the southernmost state in Mexico, um, for four years back in the the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, And as with many places throughout Latin America, you have regions that have a big mix of different indigenous groups. Um, They, you know, which would be similar to some of the indigenous nations that we have here in the United States, different and distinct languages, but they're also really this deep reservoir of traditional knowledge and really the the sort of, I would say in many cases, our our last hope for being able to address climate change because of this deep traditional knowledge when it comes to uh, caring for the land and growing food in really challenging climates. And so our goal here is to work in one of the most biodiverse places on the planet to be able to ensure that farmers have opportunities beyond um, getting stuck in this vicious cycle of the industrial manufacturing world. So in this particular place in southern Mexico, we've seen a combination of things that made things really tough. One, we see these big, you know, sort of cattle operations come in to cut down the rainforest to grow uh, pasture for cattle. Um, there's also a lot of pressure to cut down precious hardwoods um, from really uh, protected areas within this region. And then quite a few farmers actually grow coffee in Chiapas. And so our goal is to come up with a scenario and partner to be able to address multiple issues at the same time, to make sure that farmers have enough land to be able to grow um, a multitude of crops that protects biodiversity, um, that can also put food on their table, and do so in a way that has been in a place that has had its fair share of social unrest over time. And that's been largely driven by poverty. And so if we're able to address both poverty and safeguarding biodiversity and the natural landscape, um, then we have something to be able to replicate and try in other places. That is fantastic. Um, 
You know, I love your website for a lot of reasons. Um, you have just a lot of great information on there, especially, you know, when I get out onto your social media, uh, there's just lots and lots of content to look at. But there was an article on your website that was entitled The Climate Crisis, COP26, and Small Farmer Solutions. And I'd really love to give you a, a few minutes to talk through what was covered in that piece. I really liked it. So you know, you know, it, it, there's a there's a small sector of the world that you know talks about the international political arena when it comes to climate change, and so some of you may be familiar with this 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 COP process, which takes place at the United Nations, and it really started um, in Kyoto, um, Japan, you know, t- 26 years ago, and the idea was how do we get greater collaboration to work on climate change both at a national level, but with all the important stakeholders there are out there. Um, and what we really realized over the last probably five or six years is, you know, one of the missing players here are small-scale farmers. Um, you know, we get a lot of these global, you know, industrial agricultural giants participating um, in these climate change negotiations, but really they're looking out for themselves and their shareholders. But the reality is, is that some 700 million small-scale farmer families provide the vast majority of the food for the world's population. However, they're really this endangered species, and what we want to do is make sure that they not only have a place at the table, but their, their needs are, are prioritized because they're so, so critical not only to addressing the climate crisis, feeding their communities, but really, hopefully, drawing down all this carbon from the atmosphere. And so what we noticed was that through this COP process at the United Nations, you know, small-scale farmers and ranchers really were being sidelined. And what we wanted to do is make sure that there was different opportunities for them to engage and support them in that process and make sure that their priorities, their experience, and their vision can then be turned into policy. Um, because one thing that we've noticed is that, you know, both the United Nations, unfortunately, but through trade agreements like the North American Free Trade Agreement and the World Trade Organization, really small-scale farmers' needs are, are not really prioritized. And so what we want to do is make sure that their peasant or small-scale farmer vision and solutions can actually be incorporated into national and international policy to ensure that we have a, a pathway going forward. Well, and, and talk to us. Uh, that makes perfect sense. I, and I think you're 100% spot on. But in reality... How does that happen at a global meeting like this? I mean, we keep having these international summits. Um, and, you know, how do, we, how do we bring that voice? How do we, how do, we do that? There's not, um, you know, a lot of plain fare to go around in those mm-hmm. communities. Um, in addition, I mean, if they leave their land for a couple of weeks to go to a conference, um, you know, things could really go belly up. So how do we accomplish that? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think, you know, one thing that we've noticed is that, you know, for the last, wow, 15 years or so that I've been working in this space, um, you know, I think that the message from small-scale farmers has really been the same. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think sort of that framework and those policies and proposals really are there. Um, we just need to make sure that there is a I don't know, a way to support this global movement of small-scale farmers and, and the rest of us as eaters and concerned environmentalists um, to be able to make that sort of make that challenge. And so, you know, there's lots of different ways we can do this. You know, so one thing that I was thinking about, you know, and thinking about some of the areas where we work, particularly in the Amazon region. So many folks know that, you know, the Amazon is the largest, you know, tropical rainforest in the world, um, but it's also under extreme, extreme pressure by a number of different actors, um, and particularly 
you know, the global industrial, you know, uh, Beef, beef, uh, beef industry, um, and so one of the things that you know could happen relatively easy is that there is a lot of public finance that goes to be able to finance these operations that are leading the, the drive to be forced the Amazon extract mm-hmm. all of this wealth, whether it's minerals or planting things like industrial GMO soy or cattle plantations. And quite frankly, if if we cut off that finance with our own public dollars. They, I don't see how these operations continue forward. Um, so that would be just one perfect example where we have yeah. the well tools said. of public policy to do that. That's very thought-provoking, very thought-provoking. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Ryan Zinn from Grow Ahead. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We're talking with Ryan Zinn, the director of an organization called Grow Ahead. You can check out their website at growahead.org. Ryan, there was another post on your website that it really caught my attention. It's entitled Women-Led Reforestation in Brazil. Can you talk to us about what's happening there? Absolutely. So we've partnered with a fantastic network of small-scale farmers in Brazil um, to be able to support their national campaign of tree planting. And what we're talking about here is not just, you know, tree planting um, to, to plant trees for tree's sake, which is important as well, but really to make sure that we can address those greater challenges facing uh, rural communities in Brazil, particularly poverty and food insecurity. So we've partnered with an organization in northern Brazil um, as part of our first step um, in our effort and partnership um, in the country to be able to work with women as they really prioritize planting trees for food production. And so this allows them to basically feed their families um, in such a way that um, has multiple benefits. You plant trees, it sequesters carbon, it provides food for your family, and then there's also the added benefit, particularly in sort of these like some, somewhat suburban areas where you have a lack of shade cover, for example. And so by having, you know, trees planted at homes, at schools and municipal areas, this also provides an opportunity for us to be able to uh, provide some shade when it's really critical in time of climate change. 
Thanks for that. And I, I know that, you know, Brazil is one of the places that uh, we've heard about most in the news, um, you know, when it comes to some of the reforestation issues and why that's even necessary. And so I really appreciate that update. T- tell us what's going on um, with your work in Guatemala and Colombia and Nicaragua. You've got some great stuff going on there. Tell us more. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that we've done over the course of the last uh, year or so is by really focusing on those efforts beyond sort of the commercial aspect of tree planting and and with coffee cooperatives, for example, um, by working with another organization called Food for Farmers. And what they realized was that you have all of these farmers that are growing this fantastic organic and fair trade and regenerative coffee, all of which is fantastic. But if they don't get a fair price for that, uh, the reality is that they then face poverty and hunger. And so our goal has really been to enhance their fields with more crops and tree crops in particular that can, in fact, feed their families while they also grow this amazing coffee. So our goal is by partnering with these organizations in Guatemala and in Colombia would then be able to make sure that they can address those food security concerns while they continue to grow these crops and also create a much more resilient system. And one of the things that we really realized, Jill, over the last course of the last 10 to 15 years is that climate change is really hammering the small-scale coffee farmers in Latin America. As I mentioned, you know, one or two degrees makes a big difference, and we've seen this massive spread of this, this fungus, which is sometimes called La Roya in Spanish. Um, it's been really decimating trees, um, in large part because we're seeing these impacts on the ground with this fungal disease spreading throughout the coffee lands. And so by planting more shade trees, by diversifying their their land, they're able to both address this fungal attack, but also be able to become less resilient on coffee itself to be able to feed their families. That's so interesting. You know, I'm a big coffee drinker. Many of our listeners are <laughs> coffee drinkers. And I, I know the answer to this question, but some of our listeners might not realize just how impactful climate change is on coffee. And I'd love for you to, to give us an overview of that and then give us some pointers on what we can do about it. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things is that coffee is originally native to Eastern Africa, particularly in the area of Ethiopia, and over time it's really spread out throughout the world, and so much of the coffee that we drink today, um, in fact, comes from Latin America, far away from East Africa, and so one of the things that we've noticed with farmers is that, you know, if they're struggling to get by, they can't get a fair price um, for their their harvest, Um, and in fact, it becomes really hard to to make ends meet, so in fact, these low prices, these poverty prices that farmers are being paid, really drives migration to the United States. It drives migration to urban centers. Um, We're seeing this abandonment of of farmland in particular. And so there's two real aspects here. Of course, you can partner with Grow Ahead and support their more holistic approach to this. But quite frankly, I think one of the easiest and most delicious ways is by, you know, buying fair trade coffee from some of the greatest, uh, you know, roasters here in the United States. Uh, some of my favorites are Equal Exchange, which is um, really one of the longtime greats when it comes to uh, fair trade coffee here in the United States. And another one is really a, a fantastic network of fair trade coffee roasters, which is called Cooperative Coffees. And they've got roasters and they can do um, online mail sales um, to basically anybody in the country. Um, and there you're ensured the fact that you're not only paying a fair price, but really uh, a price that addresses the, the living needs of these farming communities. Um, and you get some delicious coffee in, in the process. Well, it is delicious coffee. And, and even in the supermarket, it is possible to find 
fair trade coffee. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, my family is committed to, um, you know, even if something that you want to buy off the shelf, it is possible. You can look for the labels and, and it is, if it's something that you can afford to do, um, it is the right thing to do. No question. I mean, um, all of us getting our, our caffeine fix on the backs of impoverished farmers doesn't feel good first thing in the morning. And so it's important to yeah. talk about the human beings on the other end of all those delicious sips that we take. You know, Ryan, this is kind of a personal question, but a lot of our listeners are young adults who want to get involved in sustainability. Mm-hmm. They they want a job that's green um, and, and it's and there's so many paths to take. And so I'd like for you to explain to us how you got involved in this work and what drives you to continue. Talk to us about your career a little bit. Yeah, so I started actually in the 90s working um, in Latin America, and, and my goal there was to, to work with uh, rural communities as they addressed poverty, um, and really by focusing on their own proposals, um, you know, and supporting that. And over the course of the last probably 25 years or so, um, I've been really fortunate to be able to work with some great organizations, both nonprofit and for-profit organizations, um, to be able to support and accompany these processes. And so I actually split my time between growing ahead and a fair trade and organic uh, soap company called Dr. Bronner's. Um, and really my goal is to be able to work with farmers to be able to um, make this transition insofar as it's necessary to be able to go organic and fair and regenerative, to be able to sort of meet this growing demand by consumers, particularly here in the United States, for products that are really reflect their values. You know, they want to make sure that it is, you know, climate friendly, they want to make sure that it's organic, and then most importantly, that it's really fair for those farmers. So I think there's a great and incredible opportunity at this point in time um, in this industry in that we really need more and more people to be able to work directly with farmers, whether it's in their own state and community um, or it is internationally, like I do, uh, to be able to develop these systems so that they can get their, their products to, uh, to the marketplace. You know, one of the challenges we've seen over the last couple of years is this increasing consolidation in the industry. So, you know, COVID has really exposed this for many people where we've got really all of these great, for example, in many cases, regenerative ranchers in the United States that are growing just fantastic livestock and meat for consumers. But if they can't get their product and that premium to the marketplace because they have to go through some of these uh, consolidated meat packers, it becomes really, really difficult. So it means higher prices for consumers but lower prices for the ranchers. So I see this great opportunity to really build out all of these supply chains in a way that can really invest in rural communities um, because the same challenges we see, for example, in Colombia or Ghana, we actually see in middle American parts of the United States. It is increasingly difficult to make a living as a farmer or rancher and by diversifying and building these supply chains in a way that really responds to their needs and their livelihoods, um, I think we can get a win-win. We can address the climate situation. We can raise, raise all farmers and ranchers up by making sure that they get actually compensated for all of the hard work that they're doing, all of the ecosystem services that they're providing, and the fact that they can actually get us healthy and safe and nutritious food to our place. I think that's really important. 
It's vitally important. I mean, besides clean drinking water, it's the most important thing. And so, you know, you're you're spot on. And I really appreciate the work you're doing. I really appreciate you joining us on Go Green Radio, Ryan. And and best of luck to you. Everybody get out on growahead.org and get involved. Well, that's it for this episode, everybody. But we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.